0: Tonight we're going to be in Joshua chapter 16. We'll go forward from there. And we're in that part of the book of Joshua where Joshua has led the people triumphantly into their victories in the promised land. The new generation's gone in. They've been fighting in the promised land for a couple years. And they're consolidating their victories. The land is being dispersed as an inheritance This book is very significant in that we see not just the entering into the promises, but contextually in the Pentateuch, we're going through the books of Moses, God was talking about what he had for them, the promises, the inheritance, and these were earthly inheritances, literal physical inheritances on earth, that he had for them. He had the entire promised land, the size of Southern California, for his descendants that all came through the son of promise, Isaac, then Isaac begot jacob and through jacob comes the 12 tribes of israel they went to egypt around 2000 bc they became a nation they come out in 1500 bc to mount sinai there are 1.5 million people at least then they refuse to go in on the bad report of the 10 spies so they wander in the wilderness for 38 years the older generation everyone over 20 passes away in the wilderness because of their unbelief except for joshua and caleb they come in now moses dies on this side of the jordan river they go into the promised land, led by Joshua, led by the commander of the Lord's army. And they've had these victories. They're they're going forward in life. They're not they're not rookies, if you will, in the human experience. This next generation, that was the second census. They've seen life, they've seen death, they've seen victory, they've seen defeat at AI, they've seen sun stand still, they've seen a lot of things. And they're there in the land and they're reaping the benefits of the promises of God promised to them. And bear in mind, when we read our text tonight, that God said concerning their parents, their parents said that God was going to kill that generation in the wilderness, that they should have just stayed in Egypt. And God said, you're, you're not going to enter into the parents. You're not going to enter in, but your children who you said I brought out here to kill in the wilderness, they're going to enter in. And these are those children. They're growing up now. They're not, they're not kids. They're not a future generation it's their generation. It's their time on planet Earth. And we see a lot about how that works out for every generation when they, when they become the current generation, especially when dealing with the states and inheritances, particularly from the Lord. Chapter 16, verse 1. The lot fell to the children of Joseph. So again, we're seeing the land divided. The lot is like rolling the dice, and God's divvying up the land to the tribes of the people in segments of modern, what is modern Israel, And we left off with Judah getting their lot and Caleb going after it. And now we see that the lot fell to the children of Joseph. Joseph being, of course, one of the 12 sons of Jacob. Joseph's sons were subdivided into Manasseh and Ephraim, the grandsons, because the tribe of Joseph was so large. And so we go forward with that tonight in this text. So the lot fell to the children of Joseph from the Jordan by Jericho to the waters of Jericho on the east to the wilderness that goes from Jericho through the mountains to Bethel, Then went out from Bethel to Luz, passed along the border of the Archites at Ataroth, and went down westward to the boundary of Jephilites, as far as the boundary of lower Beth-Horon to Gezer, and ended at the sea. So the children of Joseph and Nassi and Ephraim took their inheritance. So this is their boundaries. They took their inheritance. They're entering in. Verse 5. The border of the children of Ephraim, according to their families, was thus. The border of their inheritance on the east side was Ataroth-Adar, as far as upper Beth-Horon, and the border went out toward the sea on the north side of mish Then the border went around eastward to Tanath Shilo, and passed by on the east side of Janah. Then it went down from Janah to Ataroth and Nora, reached to Jericho, and came out at the Jordan. The border went out from Tufa westward to the brook Cana, and it ended at the sea. This was the inheritance of the tribe of the children of Ephraim, according to their families. The separate cities for the children of Ephraim were among the inheritance of the children of Manasseh, all the cities with their villages. And they did not drive out the Canaanites who dwelt in Gezer, but the Canaanites dwell there among the Ephraimites to this day and have become forced labor. Now, I mentioned this last week. Some of you have Bibles with the map in the back of your Bible that show the land, how these divisions took place. So in my Bible right here, I have it. So here's Judah in the south. We'll see that Simeon's in the middle of Judah. But here's Ephraim, so that's kind of going north toward the Sea of Galilee. And then there's West Manasseh, what we're talking about right now, because East Manasseh, Gad, and Reuben's on the other side of the Jordan River, which we studied. So we can see that Ephraim is just pretty much above Judah and then West Manasseh, but West Manasseh actually, like Judah, goes all the way from the Jordan River in the inland, inlandmost part of that east side of the Jordan all the way to the coast below Mount Carmel. So they have the sea breeze, and they're in the valley where it's warmer. And we've talked, it's a lot like Southern California, where you could be, your lot for your tribe could have ended somewhere where you have a nice coastal breeze, or you could end up somewhere where it's, it's pretty warm, just like Southern California. And some of these tribes, like Judah and here Ephraim, they touch the, the warm part of the desert, if you will, and they cut across the mountain range, about 3,500 feet elevation where you can get snow, over to the coast. So there, this, this tribe, Ephraim, goes across more horizontal, but some like Judah did, but some of the other tribes are more north to south and vertical when you see that map in the back. But the important thing to remember is this is their lot, by the Lord, this is their inheritance. And slowly but surely, each of the 12 tribes is getting their inheritance. We already saw that two and a half tribes chose to be on the other side, Reuben, Gad, and the half tribe of Manasseh, on the other side of the Jordan River. Judah's got theirs, and now Ephraim, the subdivided tribe of Joseph, is getting theirs. And what do we see? We get interesting detail here about Ephraim. It says that in verse 10, we talked about this last week because it had mentioned that the children of Judah could not drive out the Jebusites from Jerusalem. And here in verse 10 of chapter 16, we read, and they did not drive out the Canaanites who dwelt in Gezer. Contextually, we realize that they did not. So you could not or did not. And it's really semantics with words because since the land was promised to them and obedience to what they're supposed to do was to be the instrument of God's wrath upon these people, these people were under complete judgment from God. They were not to be spared, and that's between them and God. And Israel had the unique situation contextually at this timeline on planet Earth to obey the Lord, do the difficult thing, and eradicate people who were past redemption. They were past redemption. And they're when you come to what you don't know, you fall back on what you do know. And you're like, man, this is going to be really hard to do with these Canaanites and drive them out of this territory. And I'm not sure if I can just follow through with this. This is too much for me. This is too difficult. When you have to do difficult things. There's a funny scene in the movie Moneyball where the guy has to go in and tell the guy he's cut. He's the free agent and he's been traded. And he's like, and he, and he how do I do this? How do I let him go? You know, he's a superstar millionaire baseball player. And Brad Pitt's like the owner. He goes, just go in there and tell them HR's releasing them. they have got the plane ticket. Get your paperwork here. And off you go. And that's what he does. And it's a powerful scene in the movie. Because if you ever had to let someone go, fire someone, or tell them we're laying people off, that's a very hard thing to do. Can some of you relate to that? Those difficult things? Like, hey, I know you feel bad about this, but... You're fired. The boss says we've got to let you go. And you can blame it on the boss, but it came the lot fell to you to tell them to let go. There are things in life that are very hard to do. Now, we've never had to expel any of our adult children out of our house. But I've known many adult children that should have been expelled out of their parents' house in their own best interest. It's been said if you raise your children properly, you can spoil your grandchildren. But if you don't, If you spoil your children, you'll end up raising your grandchildren. And I've seen that in the human experience, and some of you may even know that. So there are difficult things to do. That's something for me when I was the, the coach of USA Surfing. First of all, when I worked with Billabong and I ran the Billabong national team program in 1999, I realized it wasn't the job for me because I had to tell these kids that were like 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, even 17, whose whole dream was to be a pro surfer. And I'm a dream builder, so it's really hard for me to tell you, you've got no chance, your dream is over. And what all these companies would do is they would have these kids locally, giving them product and all this stuff, and got the hype, you're going to be the next Kelly Slater, and all that kind of stuff. And some kids naturally just fade out where they realize, like, you know what? I'm never going to beat this person. I don't really want to travel the world, and I want to go to college. And they come up with different dreams. But some kids at even 13 or 14 and 16, 17, they still have the dream. And parents know what this is like, where you don't, you don't know how to tell your kid, like, you know, I don't think you're going to make the Olympics. So it's always better when your kid goes, like, hey, Dad, I don't think I'm going to make the Olympics. And then that way you can address it, Right? But what made it really hard for me with Billabong in that year in 1999 was to have to call kids up and their parents and tell them that Billabong was cutting them. Because in the surf world, if you're cut by Billabong, you're cut from the top tier. So the only way from Billabong in 1999 was down. It's the only way you're going. I just couldn't do it. I did it one one year. I just kind of had to do it. I was like, I can't do this. I can't do this to this 14-year-old kid. He just won this junior high national championship and we're letting him go because you think he's a kook, but you didn't. You only saw him surf once at a training. Like, I can't do this. And later on, when I was a coach of the U.S. surf team, I realized I got to do this again. And it was always so hard to say things that had to be said and do things that had to be done. And if you've ever coached a team, you realize you got to cut people and it's not an easy thing to do. So I'm just drawn from my own life experiences that some things are really Hard to do. In ministry, sometimes you, you encourage people to find another church. And that's very unfortunate when you have to do that. And you pray for a while that they'll find it on their own. But then sometimes you just have to say, like, you know what? This, you can't receive from us. We are God's people here. And now this hasn't happened here in a long time. So I'm not talking about any of you. But it's, I've been there. And this is contentious it's divisive, and it's going to be a better fit for you to be somewhere else. That's a really hard thing to do as a pastor, you know, because you're trying to embrace people. You're trying to bring people in, but when you just got something where it's just going to be better, like Amos can two walk together, but not in agreement, and you have to ask someone to, to go or leave or stuff. That's really, really hard. It's a hard thing to do. Life is hard. There are hard things to do, There are hard things to do when you obey the Lord that are extremely hard to do and involve saying things to people they don't want to hear and doing things to people that they don't want done, but it's still the right thing to do, and you have to obey the Lord and do it. So when you look at this context, we're not called to execute Canaanites. So (laughs) praise the Lord for that, huh? Like that's, that's not a... But God equipped them for it. We don't live in a society where people live with perpetual war, but if we lived in Russia... In Ukraine, between like 1,000 B.C. to the present time, it was pretty much a perpetual war for 1,000 years. If it's not the Poles and the Russians and the Mongols, it's the Kazakhstanis or whoever, or the Turks. But most of us don't understand what that's like. But in the context, that's what they're called to do. So when it says they did not drive them out, we only can conclude they did not drive them out because they weren't willing to drive them out. And it wasn't in them. So since God equips us for whatever we're called to do, he's never going to call us to do something he doesn't equip us to do. Any difficult moment, a testimony in a trial, serve on a jury, let someone go, he's going to equip us for that moment. We're never abandoned by the Lord. It's God who wills and works in us for his good pleasure as disciples of Jesus Christ if we've given our life to Christ. So those difficult things we have to do Yes, they're difficult to do, but I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me to do it. And so sometimes you just have to do something very difficult and very hard. But if you know that's what the Lord's called you to do, and even if it offends people and hurts people, you need to do it. You have to be willing to do the difficult things that God calls us to do when he calls us to do it. My sister, doing so well with the Lord these days, four years sober, great job at Home Depot, living in Vero Beach, has her house, has her cute little life, and she's so thankful and grateful. You'd almost forget 32 years ago, she was living with her a man who had her pregnant, going to church, going to women's Bible studies, saying she's a Christian and living in sin, and saying she's, she, everything's good with the Lord and God just wants her happy. You almost forget Christmas of nineteen. 19- well, it was 1992, and we were in Virginia Beach, and we we're coming back home for Christmas, and my, I was like, gosh, I hope my sister's not there, because, you know, it says in First Corinthians not to even break bread with such a person. Now, it's one thing if it's your children and how you're trying to manage that. It's quite another if it's your sister, and she's like, praise the Lord, and she's pregnant living with her boyfriend and not married, and just saying, God loves me and wants me happy, and she quotes Jeremiah 29. My thoughts for you are a future and a hope. Like, she used to quote that verse out of context all the time. I'm like, that's not the kind of happy he has for you, Barbie, that's mishandling the word of God. And so I told my mom, I believe God's showing us that we're not to eat dinner with Barbie. That she's in sin. She thinks she's right with the Lord. And I, I, I'm not comfortable with that. And I, it's my conviction that, we're not, that it's, it's not for me and Jennifer and our new baby, Hannah, to, to do that. Man, my mom flipped and blew a g- gasket. She went ballistic. She went to the priest. She went right down to St. Francis, talked to the priest, because I shared the text with 1 Corinthians 5, you know, not to eat, even eat with such a brother or whatever, Deliver them over to Satan for the destruction of their flesh, that their soul might be saved. And my mom went ballistic, and she lectured me on how the Catholic Church has been around for 2,000 years in Calvary Chapels, the happy home center across the street. has been around for 30 years with Pastor Chuck and blah, 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 all that stuff. But I did not blink. With my wife as a witness, we did not eat Christmas dinner in 1992 with my sister to hold her accountable for being a hypocrite, self-deceived, and a bad witness. Now, my mom's like, you're judgmental, you're condemning, you're condescending. I'm like, no, I'm obeying the word of God right now in this situation. And believe me, I wish that wasn't my lot. But this is what the scripture says. This is what God's called us to do. You know, my sister now, 30 years later, thanks me for that. She has thanked me that 30 years ago I had the courage to stand up to my mom, who scared everybody, and take a stand for the word of God and hold her accountable for what she was doing at that time in her life. She's thanked me that we've spoken truth and stood up for the right things and and held her accountable. And she thanks me now. But let me tell you, it was brutal 30 years ago. It's not always easy to stand up to the Canaanites and do what's right. It's not always easy to take a stand when we're supposed to take a stand and how it can fall out and affect family relations and things like that. My mom was so mad at me for so long over that. It took decades before the fruit of that obedience in our life impacted my mom and my sister for good. And Jesus says wisdom is justified by her children. And WG, just sometimes we don't drive things out because it's hard and, and there is a softer landing and why not just go to Christmas dinner and just be like, whatever, right? Can you all relate to that? Uh, why, why, you know, why, why pick this battle? Let's just go, whatever, you know she, 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 she's an adult It's what she chose to do just whatever, let's just go to Christmas dinner and let it go but that's, if God says that's not what you're supposed to do then that's not what you're supposed to do especially when you look when you look at the scriptures and it says this and you know you're accountable for that what are you going to do so they didn't drive them out because they weren't willing to drive them out it wasn't in them to fully obey the lord in the difficult things it was only in them to receive the blessings without the responsibilities that prepare you to really flourish in those blessings You see, in doing the hard things and going through the trials and tribulations, then when you receive the inheritance, you actually know how to handle it and take care of it because you've been refined and seasoned by life and you can be entrusted with it. But if you only take your, it says right there in verse five, the children took their inheritance. If you only take the inheritance and settle for the land, but not what's required of you to actually, to stewardship that land and be faithful in that land, then you're going to come up short. It wasn't in them to do what was right. The character was lacking. They were willing to settle for less than full obedience as it was clearly for them in the Lord. And you know, it's easy to justify that, especially when there's economic gain. Did you notice in this passage there's economic gain in doing nothing? What's cheaper than minimum wage employment? Slave labor. If you're inheriting vineyards and olive groves and wells and farms, you need farm workers Farmhands. It's an agri-society. Why hire your Jewish brethren for a higher price when you can just keep the people alive you're supposed to execute and have them work for free as slave labor? There was not only an easier route for them to do nothing about this and not obey the Lord, but in compromising full obedience, there was a short-term financial gain too. It'd be easier to balance the books when you got people working for free. Do you see that here? There was a financial incentive for them not to fully obey the Lord in this passage. We need to be careful of financial incentives that look good on paper and in the checkbook, but require compromise and disobedience to what the Lord's shown us to do. It's never about the money. It's always about the heart and obedience. Some heavy stuff in chapter 16. Chapter 17, we read on. The other half-tribe of Manasseh, the west side, that's the west side, the <laughs> east side, west side, verse, seven, verse 1, chapter 17, there was also a lot for the tribe of Manasseh, for he was the firstborn of Joseph. Again, these are the subdivisions based upon the grandchildren. Namely for uh, Machir, the firstborn of Manasseh, the father of Gilead, because he was a man of war, therefore he was given Gilead and Bashan. And there was a lot for the rest of the children of Manasseh, according to their families, For the children of Abazir, the children of Helak, the children of Asriel, the children of Shechem, the children of Hefer, the children of Shemida, these were the male children of Manasseh, the son of Joseph, according to their families. But Zolophad, the son of Hefer, the son of Gilead, the son of Micah, the son of Manasseh, had no sons but only daughters, and these are the names of his daughters, Mahala, Noah, Hagla, Milcah, and Tirzah. And they came near before Eleazar the priest, before Joshua the son of Nun, before the ruler, saying, The Lord commanded Moses to give us an inheritance among our brothers. Therefore, according to the commandment of the Lord, he gave them his inheritance among their father's brothers. Ten shares fell to Manasseh, besides the land of Gilead and Bashan, which were on the other side of Jordan, because the daughters of Manasseh received an inheritance among his sons, and the rest of Manasseh's sons had the land of Gilead. And the territory of Manasseh was from Asher." To Methah, that lies east of Shechem, and the border went along south to the inhabitants of En Tafua. Manasseh had the land of Tafua, but Tafua on the border of Manasseh belonged to the children of Ephraim, and the border descended to the brook Cana, southward to the brook. These cities of Ephraim are among the cities of Manasseh. The border of Manasseh was on the north side of the brook, and it ended at the sea. Southward, it was Ephraim's northward, it was Manasseh's, and the sea was its border. Manasseh's territory was adjoined to Asher on the north and Issachar on the east. And in Issachar and in Asher, Manasseh had Bethsheen in its towns, Eblium in its towns, the inhabitants of Dor in its towns, the inhabitants of Endor in its towns, the inhabitants of Tenoch in its towns, the inhabitants of Megiddo in its towns, three hilly regions. Yet the, the children of Manasseh could not drive out the inhabitants of these cities, but the Canaanites were determined to dwell in that land And it happened when the children of Israel grew strong that they put the Canaanites to forced labor but did not utterly drive them out. So as we saw Ephraim's division and now we have Manasseh's division, the Daughters of Zolophad come back in the picture. We spent quite a bit of time looking at the Daughters of Zolophad when we were going through the Pentateuch earlier and whatnot over the last few years. This is pretty cool, but of course this is... uh, Gender equality in the inheritance, which is really neat, obviously. To say the least, it's pretty cool that the ladies get the same inheritance where there's not a brother uh, as the brothers would have gotten, which is really neat. It just shows how God has order and design and equity. And ultimately, eternity will have all equity and purpose balance. All things that men try to accomplish with govern govern governances, good or bad, perfect justice and equity is in eternity, so we don't have to worry about it. Whatever goes wrong on this side of the dimensions goes right perfectly on that side, and how we handle things on this side is good for us. I've often thought it'd be very difficult at times to be a woman when you see how, and having daughters that are very gifted and skillful, you're very protective of your daughters. When you feel like they don't get the same pay rate or something like that, you're, you're bound to feel defensive of them and protective of them. Jennifer grew up in a family where her dad was all about like women having equality and empowerment and all this kind of stuff, and you know, like it's a good thing. We're equal in the Lord, we're told. But man's ahead of woman in marriage. We've seen that and we understand that as well. Man's prideful and arrogant. The woman was deceived. The Bible makes that clear. And we have our strengths and weaknesses. I'm happy my daughters are both given opportunity in this country to shine and excel and be productive enough to buy houses and make good income to complement full-time ministry in some cases and raising many children in others. I'm very proud of my daughters and what our country and our laws allow them to do as opposed to if our daughters were living in a serious Muslim country like Afghanistan or Pakistan, what would it be like for our daughters? It would be a horrible situation. And those things, those kind of injustices are obviously very hard to watch. But know this, where the gospel of Jesus Christ truly goes forward, it elevates the rights of all people. Because there's neither rich nor poor, free nor slave, male nor female, but we're all one in Christ. And societies that recognize that and advance that bring great good to all humanity not just like chosen portions of humanity. And even our own country, we're not a perfect country. We're just the best country that ever existed. And we're a country that got better and better as time went on as a whole for civil rights and equality. So I, I, don't, I don't like to listen to anyone bash our country. And I say what a lot of other people say. You don't like America and you hate America? There's plenty of other places you can live. So feel free to get on a plane and go there and see how that works. The beauty of our country is you can say anything you want against the leadership and the people and all this stuff. That's what makes our country great. Try doing that in other countries and see how that goes. I've traveled the world, as have many of you, and you know that it just doesn't go. It just doesn't go. So aren't you glad that our women can go out on the streets and protest things, whether we agree with them or not, biblical or unbiblical? You try and protest something in Kabul today, how'd that go for the ladies? Public beatings, shaming, ridicule, and driven away. That's the religion of men. Jesus Christ elevates women. Now, in the case of the daughters of Zoliphate, what's pretty cool about them is they were given inheritance equal to the brethren in their tribe, but they did have a condition, because being female, there is a difference. We understand there's a difference between men and women, right? Like, men can get pregnant. They can't get pregnant. Women get pregnant, right? Like, we understand that, right? God determined the genders and all that stuff. So, in the case of the daughters of Zoliphate, they had their property, And they had options with that. They could stay single and keep their property, but they have no heirs to pass it on to. So it would have gone to their sister or something like that and her descendants. Or they could marry within the tribe of Manasseh and they could merge their assets with the man they're marrying within their tribe and they could keep the assets together, expand their equity base and have children and grandchildren and keep it within the tribe. And so the estate and the inheritance would stay with the future generations. Or... This is really cool because of self-determination. If they're just madly in love with that guy from the tribe of Asher, Naphtali, up above, they can go marry him, but the estate doesn't go with them. So if the daughters of Zolophad, who are from Manasseh, want to marry Benjamin up there in the tribe of Asher, she's in love, she's like, i just going to marry him, then she would count that cost that she's letting go of the estate. The estate doesn't leave. You, don't, you, can't, you can't have marry this guy in Asher, and then this part, portion of Manasseh's inheritance comes into Asher, you'd have pocket holes all over the place of confusion in how the tribes were divided, so she stays here, she keeps it herself her lifetime or she marries someone else within the tribe then it goes to her children, as children, children but if she says, you know, I'm mad in love with ben- Benjamin up here in the tribe of Asher then she gives it to her sisters and says, I love you all peace, shalom, out, and off she goes because she's mad in love and a happy ending to a romance movie and that's fine too It's self-determined. And if she wakes up 40 years later after being married to Benjamin and says, I'm not sure about that. Well, that was a decision you made, a self-determination, and you live with it. So it's really neat the way God laid that out. Now, I'm harmonizing what we already studied about the daughters as old fad to understand this context. But I'm just so glad that the gospel of Jesus Christ elevates people. It it elevates true education, true science, true health, all those things, wherever the gospel goes, it elevates truth. Because everything about Jesus is truth and transparency. There's no shadow of turning, shuffling of feet, weakening of the eyes. Isn't it beautiful when you serve Jesus? There's no shadow of turning. Jesus is absolute truth for science, health, medical, the universe, theology, salvation, humanity, anthropology, all of it, it's all true as God's defined it in his word. It's a wonderful thing. The whole universe with trillions of stars and galaxies and it revolves around us and we're the apple of his eye, the church, it's, it's wonderful. Then it goes on to say they could not drive them out. So again, we have they did not. And here it says, so Ephraim did not. And then Manasseh says they could not. So it's kind of like the same reason. They just, it's not in you. That's why we want to discipline our kids to accept disappointment early on. That's why we want to discipline our kids to do hard things early on. And that's why we want to discipline our kids to go after the difficult task first in that sense. Now, they say when you take a test, get all the answers you can and then go back to the hard questions. We understand that. But if you teach your kids or the people you work with to only equip them to do the things they're capable of doing and not stretch them to tr- do harder things, they're going to be stunted in their growth. You're not, we're not going to become who we're meant to be. As I began to take care of my dad's estate, I tell my mom, Mom, I'm just so overwhelmed calling USAA and straightening this out with this car insurance and, and calling, oh, John Hancock Life Insurance. This is so confusing and what they want to do. And my mom would just be like, Joe, I'm like, it's not my strength. This is Jennifer's strength. And she goes, but God's going to make it your strength. Because you're the one that's called to do this, not Jennifer. So just figure out the next call, the next thing, make the call, and figure out what the next thing is you're supposed to do. Because in my mind, it's like, if you know me, when I teach, when I trip over my words, it's because I have six lanes of traffic merging into three. My mind has all these lanes, so whenever I start tripping my words, and I hear it when I listen to my studies, you're like, what did he just say? It's because I've got six lanes moving into three. I've always got all these thoughts on filtering, like, you know, when Chuck used to pause? Pastor Chuck pauses? I always thought he's just catching his breath. And he's thinking. He's thinking about what he's going to say, and more importantly, what he's not going to say. I'm learning not to let like, six thoughts race into three lanes. But I do, especially the administrative stuff, and those kind of calls where you put on hold and then they drop your call. I, I, I just start, I just, I, my wife stays composed. Me, I, I just run outside and scream or something. But like my mom said, you know, God is teaching you how to do this. And I learned in the last five years, I've, I've learned a lot. Like, okay, it's not all this stuff. It's just the next thing. So there are things that we cannot do that are hard to do, but we need to be willing to do them as the Lord is calling us to do them. You know how we like to kick difficult tasks down the road? It's there on Monday morning that ends up, oh, didn't get to it on Friday. It'll be there next week. The things that we really have to do, we have to do. It's kind of like we were talking about earlier, but a little bit different. They could not drive them out because they weren't willing to drive them out and it wasn't important enough to drive them out. Even the difficult things that are hard to do they're important, and we need to do them, and we need to obey the Lord and get them done. We don't want to be said that we could. If it's something that we're called to do in the Lord, which they were called to do, we don't ever want to be said, said that we could not drive them out. Because if we cannot drive out something we're called to do, that means we're unwilling, our heart's not right, we're prideful, we're carnal, or whatever. It, it means we haven't figured it out, and we're not letting God work in us. If it's our availability that becomes our ability, then that means if we can't do it, that means we're not available. Because in the availability is the ability. So even the difficult things, God help me, I don't know how to do this. When you drive to San Diego and get the death certificate for your mom and meet with the funeral home and you're just like, how does this work when you travel with your mom's remains on the plane and how does it even work? You know what I'm saying? Like there's just things like you don't even know what's in front of your future for some of our lives, the difficult things you have to do and how's this gonna work and what's this like? But our availability is our ability. Therefore, really, there shouldn't be anything God's called us to do that we cannot do. Because if we're really looking to him in faith, he's going to equip us to do it, no matter how difficult it might seem to be. Now we read on verse 14. Then the children of Joseph spoke to Joshua, saying, Why have you given us only one lot and one share to inherit, since we are a great people inasmuch as the Lord has blessed us until now. So Joshua answered and said, if you're a great people, then go out to the forest country and clear a place for yourself. They're in the land of the Perizzites and the giants, since the mountains of Ephraim are too confined for you. But the children of Joseph said, well, the mountain country is not enough for us, and all the Canaanites who dwell in the land of the valley have chariots of iron, both those who are Bethshinan and his towns and those who are the valley of Jezreel. And Joshua spoke to the house of Joseph to Ephraim and Asi. So again, he's talking to both what we've studied now. Both groups want more, right? And he says, uh, well, verse 17, uh, you are great people. See, they said they were great people. And Joshua says, you are great people and you have great power. You shall not have only one lot, but the mountain country shall be yours. Although it is woody, you shall cut it down and its farthest extent shall be yours. For you shall drive out the Canaanites, though they have iron chariots and are strong. Let me give you a 2021 translation on this one. Uh, children, there's no entitlement in this house. But, Dad, we're a great people. We're a great people. Look, at, that's, that's right. Son, you are a great person. Daughter, you're a great person. But this isn't about entitlement. See, that's what happens. Sometimes with inheritances and natural gifts, you can rely on natural gifts, natural talent, as opposed to developing them more. Just, sometimes, when, sometimes when you get stuff for free, it has no value, right? Like, so I got all those free surfboards for years, and they got dinged up in the car. They got dinged up in the water. Someone runs over me. I don't care. I just go to Mike Barron's factory and get another board. But once I paid $200 for a surfboard in, like, 2004, I treated that thing like it was the crown jewel of the household. Hey, Timmy, don't touch my board. Like, when I'm getting in and out of the car, I'm like, whoa, easy there, easy, easy, because it cost me something. I spent $200, like, I haven't bought a surfboard since I mowed lawns for a board in 1975. But when you're 50, you don't get them for free anymore, right? So 200 bucks is still a good price. When you've earned something, it has greater value. So even though you get the deal, or as I say in surfing, the bro shaka, you still need to take ownership of it. We could do a lot of things for free with our youth, but we still charge something so it has value. That's the tricky things about inheritances. Like when people win the lottery, it's like free money, but they don't know what to do with it. So most people that win the lottery are train wreck with the money. They usually go bankrupt, and all their so-called friends take it from them over time. Because the journey teaches you how to manage the money, so when you come into the money, you can handle the money and grow the money. But if someone just gives you all the money and you haven't been prepared for it, you're in over your head. You don't know what to do. That's why it's so important to embrace trials and tribulations, heartaches and setbacks, and take ownership of what's our responsibility. So they've already got some, they already took, they already took what they got. They, they took something and said, yeah, this is cool, but they didn't close the deal. They did, they did not drive them out. They could not drive them out, but they did not drive them out because the, 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 the obstacle was determined, we saw just previously. They're determined. They you know, Joshua, they're pretty determined. It's hard. This is not an easy job. Right, it's not an easy job. That's the way God designed it so you wouldn't think you could do it, but you'll look to him and he'll help you do it. But we're a great people. We want more. We want more beachfront property up by Mount Carmel. We want more. I want more in the, by the river valley there. We want more. We've got a big family. We want more. Joshua's like, you're a great people. You want more? Go get it. Go get it stand on the promises of God, obey what he says to do, and go get it. Don't come to me. Don't come crying to me saying, give me, give me, give me more. You are great people. Well, they have chariots in the valley. and a, Right. If being great was easy, then it wouldn't be great. If walking by faith was based upon sight, then it wouldn't be walking by faith. It's impossible to please God without faith. Attempt great things for God, expect great things from God. If you can see it, manufacture it, or just take it, there's no faith element in that. God is preparing all of us for eternity, and it requires faith. It requires trials and tribulations and fire and pruning and refining The journey prepares us for the destination. It's really not even about the destination. It's the preparation that gets us to the destination. Therein is the greatness. And it's like the calipillar in the cocoon. You can't just let the caterpillar out of the cocoon. It won't survive. The caterpillar has to go through the struggle to develop the wings to be ready to fly. And we're told in Romans 8, as we're joint heirs with Christ for all eternity... All the inheritance of, of the universe is ours in Christ Jesus, to rule and reign with him if we suffer with him, is what it says. You know, I never liked that part of Romans 8. I like the part where was like, hey, we're joint heirs with Christ. Wow, the universe, like trillions and gazillions of, of stuff we can see in the universe, and there's a whole other et- dimension we don't even see, the eternal dimension. So all oh, this is ours, all oh, this is ours. It's like, yeah, but God's not going to break you out of the cocoon. You have to go through the process. Because all things work together for good to those who love God and are called according to his purpose, who are being conformed to the expressed image of his Son. So, all those heartaches, all those disappointments, all those injustices, all those things that we go through, the the heartbreak, those are things that prepare us for eternity to rule and reign with Christ. That's why we go through those trials and tribulations. They're critical for our growth. We have to face the chariots in the valley. We have to take the promises of God revealed to us and believe them like Joshua and Caleb. And we have to accept the obedience required of us based upon those promises when we look at those chariots. And like the prayer of Jabez, expand our boundaries, we have to be willing to go out there and expand those boundaries. The, they always say, like, pray like it depends on the Lord and get busy like it depends on you. That balance of God's sovereignty over situation but our willingness to be engaged in the process. You know, there's no water pots turned to wine if they're not filled to the brim in John chapter 2. They filled those water pots to the brim. They got maximum return miracle on the investment of their effort and what they did. And it's not the effort that's earning anything, but it's definitely the effort that is showing the conviction of faith, obedience, and willingness to do things. As Elizabeth Elliot used to say, do something. Do something. Like I shared two weeks ago, watching the, the end of the war in Afghanistan and, and a, the defeat of the United States at the hands of these terrorists wearing our uniforms and driving our Humvees was just crushing. Such a helpless feeling. But you pray, know, you pray, you cry. You should. If you didn't, you should. If you really know, it's heartbreaking. But I'm like, Lord, what do I do? I feel so helpless. Lord's like, you know, release that money to the orphans in Uganda. Right? I told you this on Saturday. Just release. And then you get the picture with the orphans in their new shoes in Uganda. You're like, you know what? We do what we can do. Do something. We need an outlet of our faith. We need to apply our faith. We need to show obedience to the Lord. We need to get out there and do something. To get after it. We don't want to sit back entitled. We don't want to sit back in doom and gloom like it's over. We're not done until Jesus says we're done. And we have the great commission, all the authority of heaven. We have the word of God to thoroughly equip us. We have a world out there that's dying, confused, hurting, perplexed, and overwhelmed. Perplexity of nations, men's hearts failing them. That's what we have right now, which is exactly what the Bible said would have. So we need to be focused and not afraid of chariots. And we need to embrace the promises and go after everything God has for each one of us individually and as a church collectively and the body of Christ in 2021. That's what we need to do. So I close tonight with, with this thought. We got a job to finish. We got to finish the job in our generation. Like, whatever it is, we're called. We got, we got to, the job's not done. We got, we got to finish the job. Like, this isn't over. As a pro surfer, the, the most difficult times as a pro surfer is when you're winning with five minutes to go. They do the five-minute horn, or they got the yellow flag, and you know you're winning. It can't be over soon enough, but you have to close it out. You have to keep your wits. You have to do everything you can to hold on and win. It's like a football team. you got to drive down the field one more time. you got to close it out. You need that field goal. Put, put the game away. You've got to close it out. We have to finish. We have to close. Whereas they say in baseball, it's not over till the last out. You have, you, you know, they always say the, the, the toughest out is the last out. How many incredible things have happened in baseball when there's one strike left and one out and it turned around? It's been, remember the Angels in the 80s? Playoffs in 86 with Boston? I mean, it's crazy like how you can be right there and lose, it all unravel. We need to close the deal. We need to close it out. That's how I look at the rest of my life, that there's still much to do. And we are blessed until now, but we're not going to sit around entitled or defeated. I'm not, and I don't think we are. And there are chariots of iron, lots of them. But we don't have to overcome anything other than our fear of men, fear of failure, and just simply obey what the Lord's told us to do in our sphere of influence that he's entrusted us to do. He's not going to leave us, nor forsake us, and he's going to see us through whatever it is that he has for us in each of our personal lives in any time, including this time. That battle, that journey, think, think about Esther. You know, Esther, she, she's Jewish, but she grows up in a foreign country. Her language is not the primary language. Her parents die, so either her dad or her mom's brother raised her, Uncle Mordecai. She obviously was beautiful. I mean, the most powerful man in the world chose her as a wife. She was beautiful, so she was vulnerable. Foreigner, second language, not even her parents to to look to to guide her, but Mordecai loved her, her relative, presuming it's the uncle. Think of all the hardships she's had her entire life, and then she ends up in the palace, and then that crowning moment, if I live, I live, if I die, I die, but who's not to say I have been appointed for such a time as this, like Mordecai said to her? Where does she get the courage to, to completely lay it all on the line and risk her life right there for herself and for all of her people? She got it in an entire journey when she learned to live by faith, forgive, let go, and be refined by the trials and events that molded and shaped her. Esther just didn't wake up being Esther on that crowning moment in Esther chapter 4 in the entire book. Esther was Esther before we even get there. That's my point you have to take on the chariots. That's how you become Esther on that day, that crowning day where you're the, it's shown that the glory comes forth, this greatness comes forth. It was there in the journey. It didn't just happen that day. It was in the journey. It's like David when he fought Goliath, but then later on when he becomes king, the journey of the 13 years of the difficulties and the trials in the wilderness and Saul coming after him and the, the death and the violence and all these horrible things and acting like a madman and losing his wife and all these things, they, they're brutal, they're gut-wrenching but they made him and they forged him. And then he was the king of Judah, and then he's the king of Israel. And he was ready to be the king. It didn't just happen. It was the process of battles. See, that's where greatness is. The struggle and the battle and fighting the good fight is what produces the maturity and the character we need in this life. As we move through the journey. But it's what really is producing in us what we need in the next life, in eternity. That's what God is doing. We have to take on the chariots because that's what we're called to do. Whatever those are in prayer, supplication, obedience, we need to face those things and we need to see it through. We need to go get all the inheritance and not sit around like entitled brats and saying, I'm satisfied with what I have, but actually I want more, so go get it. No, not to be satisfied with what we have, because we don't have all that God has for us. So to get after all that God has for us and not make excuses, but to accept our responsibilities and go for it completely with everything we got. That's what we need to do, like right about now. And and I think I speak for all of us. That's really our hearts where we're at and what we want to do. I just don't like to to read, they could not, they did not, they could not, but they did not. I just don't like that. I was on a jury trial a couple weeks ago. For five days, I was on the jury, and I listened to over 100 jurors come through. Four jury pools came through, and I listened to excuse after excuse after excuse after excuse from all these people, and I was willing to stay. They dismissed me on the fifth day. I was willing to stay. It was a long trial. I was willing to stay because I felt it was on my civil, civic duty. I just got tired of hearing excuses. Are any of you tired of hearing excuses? I don't want to hear excuses from the person I see in the mirror, and I want to hear excuses from my neighbor, especially in the body of Christ in the name of Jesus. This, I don't want to hear excuses. John Wooden could tolerate a lot as the greatest coach of all time, but one thing he could never tolerate? Excuses. Accept responsibility for who we are, what God's entrusted to us, trust in his promises, And like Esther, if I live, I live. If I die, I die. But for such a time as this, that's why we're here.